Maybe you've heard of Slack, but what is it? Slack is your new HQ. One place for everyone at your company to find answers, share updates, and stay caught up. Slack, where work happens. Get started at slack.com. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me 11 times, well, shame on everyone. That's how I felt about President Trump's trade deal sooner than you think comments that exploded the market higher today just when it looked a little shaky because of impeachment chatter and lack of visible progress with China. Trump makes these remarks and turns things around again. Averages bringing back up by magic. Dow climbing 163 points. S&P gaining 0.62%. NASDAQ surging 1.05%. After, by the way, a pretty dispiriting session yesterday. It's like no one else remembers the last dozen times this has happened. Sure, maybe this time will be different. My sources say no. Maybe the White House will get a deal to end all deal with the Chinese and the global economy will snap, snap back into shape. My sources say don't, be, don't believe it. Maybe as Speaker Nancy Pelosi begins the long process of impeaching President Trump, she's also working behind the scenes to pass the new trade deal Trump negotiated with Mexico and Canada. Raises eyebrows. Yeah, and maybe the tooth fairy's ready to shove some Bitcoin under the pillow of every kid who loses a tooth. Maybe Jewel is deeply committed to stopping those same kids from getting hooked on vaping. Maybe the earth is flat. Who can say? At times like these, I like to look for totems, for things to hang my hat on so I can go about the process of picking stocks without being held hostage to the on-again, off-again trade talks with China. Because waiting for a trade deal feels like a little like kind of waiting for Godot. That's not a stock. It's a play. There's nothing to hang your hat on with this trade war. Remember when the Chinese lobbed that bomb at our negotiators when they hastily canceled a huge trip to Montana last week? It crushed the stock market on Friday. Only it turned out we were the ones who put the kibosh on the Goodwill mission. Things are so disorganized and hapless that Wall Street thought an official government spokesperson was furious at China for the cancellation. But in reality, this person was a low-level PR flack for the agriculture industry. <laughs> to be fair, the Montana Farm Bureau Federation, the source of the news, sounds semi-official, doesn't it? And it's not like the media and the stock market were alone in being fooled. Even the president seemed to believe the Chinese canceled the trip on their own until Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin disabused them of that notion and said, hey, what really happened uh, in a very awkward press conference was, we canceled it. Trying to game the negotiations is a mugs game. So how do you immunize your portfolio against all this craziness? Okay, you know, I've been trying to find companies that have nothing to do with trade in the hope that their stocks won't be hurt badly uh, if we learn that there is no deal and we have a connection to a flagging global commerce section. We don't want that. No, we don't want to buy a stock. No deal. Economy slows. We get killed. But you know what I realized? I realized that was the wrong approach. I'm, I'm not doing it right. 
Now I've come up with a new paradigm. I'm working backwards. What do you do? First, you figure out the worst case scenario for trade. And then you see who's managed to tame the beast. As it turns out, well, you don't have to look very far because the situation I'm describing is basically Nike. Think about it. Thanks to the trade war, we know that, in theory, this should be the worst possible moment to sell iconic American brands into the People's Republic of China. Uh, we know that tariffs of goods made in China are hurting margins for many companies. We know that the consumer worldwide is in worse shape than last year, doesn't necessarily want to spend a lot of money on footwear. You think Nike would bear the weak brunt of this weakness, wouldn't you? Not only do they rely heavily on China for manufacturing, it's also one of the largest end markets, and a cash-strapped consumer is the last thing that you want to have to sell into. Yet Nike managed to run the gauntlet yesterday, and they did it with style. Last night, the company reported, and we learned that rather than being the most vulnerable to the trade war, Nike's actually the most in control of its own destiny. And that's why the stock rallied three bucks and changed today. On the conference call, we learned some truly amazing things in this Mark Parker-derived CEO clinic that really just kind of blew me away. Uh, at one point, uh, Parker noted, as I said before, Nike is the brand of China for, China for China, and the results continue to prove it out. We've driven double-digit growth in greater China every quarter for more than five years, end quote. Wow. And nothing has derailed this story. Nike's greater China sales were up 27% on currency-neutral basis. I wish I sometimes I say, I wish I could make that even, I wish you knew how spectacular that is. Well, how about this? The tariffs. Uh, the handle of the plum. CFO Andrew Campion pointed out that the current quarter will be the peak for tariff impact. After that, because Nike has so many levers it can pull, things should get better and better with each quarter. In other words, they have the scale to be able to overpower this. <coughs> so they have the tariff situation quantified, dealt with. I'm not worried. You'd expect a cash trap consumer to weigh on Nike pricing, but that didn't happen either. In fact, we saw just the opposite with some significant gross margin increases and much lower gross margins than I expected. <coughs> Excuse me. Almost had to drink some Pepto-Bismol. But for the first time in this week, my stomach didn't hurt. How the heck did they even pull off any of this stuff, really? Now you get into the core of what allows Nike to thrive in this environment, regardless of how the trade negotiations are going. First, there's innovation. There's the Joyride. That's a running shoe designed to encourage more everyday athletes to get moving. Then there's the new basketball shoes, the Zoom Freak and the Alpha Dunk, not to mention the comfortably cushioned Air Max 200. Second, Nike's also freshening up old favorites uh, like the venerable Jordan brand. Now, here's one. Can you believe Jordan's actually accelerated this quarter with healthy double-digit growth across all geographies, including mid-teens growth in North America? Michael Jordan, he retired for the third and final time way back in 2003. You know what? The many of the Jordan wearers, they weren't even alive when this guy was playing. Third, as Matt Boss, the brilliant J.P. Morgan retail analyst, points out, Nike is best-in-class digital marketing scale and segmentation. They're just... They're the class of the business. Oh, on the conference call, we saw how each of these pay, pays off. Nike's killing it in digital. It's up 42%. They're making more money selling direct to the consumer than they do selling to wholesalers. Their inventories are lean with just enough product to sate Chinese demand on Singles Day, my favorite holiday. That's on November 11th, where for no reason whatsoever, you buy things for people. Nike's biggest inventory problem, they don't have enough markdown merchandise to fill their, their factory outlet stores. High-quality problem. When it comes to knowing their customer, Nike recently bought a little company called Select, which they mentioned several times in the call. Here's how the CFO, Andrew Campion, explained it. 
quote, selects team and proprietary digital demand sensing tools will help us more effectively predict demand, plan supply, and sharpen our pricing and mark down cadence, end quote. That's incredible. Boy, have we come a long way from the old days when my dad had to watch the now defunct Gimbel's department store close his wing of the floor for a day just so he could count the number of unsold gabardine trousers. Frankly, you know, he's got so much going forward here that I don't have the time. I really don't have the time to list all the positives. I got a whole lot of the rest of the show to do. But here's how Campion sums it up. Quote, despite increasingly dynamic and somewhat unpredictable macro and geopolitical factors, consumer sentiment and affinity for the Nike brand remain strong and consistent. End quote. Booyah. Here's the bottom line. At a time when so many companies are wringing their hands and making excuses for all the obstacles in front of them, look for the winners who seem to thrive on these challenges. Companies like Nike, they don't complain about how the environment's making it tough for them to deliver. You know what? They just do it. Andrew in Alabama. Andrew. Jim, hope you're having a booyah of a day. This is one of the best booyah days in ages, although the traffic's really bad here. I was an hour, I was 40 minutes late to a lunch today. I almost slit my throat. What's up? <laughs> I wanted to discuss U.S. steel stock. I don't think the company's diamond is known through all the birth parts of the company. Here in Alabama, they have a real estate arm called USS Realty. To give you a little history lesson, it still holds a tremendous value, amount of land they had from the old TCI acquisition over 100 years ago. And USS Realty has a take-care approach. to develop. And they've developed at least six new right. master plan communities here in Alabama, and they have thousands of raw acreage shovel-ready along the I-20 corridor just outside Birmingham. Right. And, and I, really I know the plant, and I've been, I've been there, actually, but I've got to tell you this. There's other places away from there that aren't doing that well. I don't care for the balance sheet, and if you can't make money in the steel business right now, we ain't going to make it. So I think letter X is a nay, and I think Nucor is a, is a yay. But remember, the steel business is awfully hard in a global slowdown. Sam in Connecticut, Sam! Hey, Jim, Sam Lyman. What are your thoughts on Match Group with the FTC lawsuit on Mad? Match.com's ad practice. I don't care that about. I don't care enough about that. What I do care about is Facebook coming in. I think Facebook is a level where it should be bought. I told that to. I told members of the uh, ActionLearnersPlus.com club that it's almost time to pull the trigger. I think I might have been too chary. Let's go to uh, Aram in New York. Aram. Hi, Jim Kramer. Huge fan. Love your show. Thank you. I have a question about Funko. F N K O. Mm -hmm. We had the CEO on in May. That's when I bought the stock. And I was just wondering, and recently he just sold uh, 4 million shares or let out into the market. So I was just wondering what your take is he on killed that the stock. whole situation. He killed the stock with an insider sale. He just crushed it. The stock has been going down pretty much ever since he did that. And you know what? It's made me gun shy. Candidly, I'm gun shy. Hey, how about Randy in Vermont, please? Randy. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm not bad. How about you? Uh, pretty good. Autumn is starting here in Vermont. Hey, I started a position in Lockheed Martin in 2004 <clears throat> and sold half positions at 100, 200, and 300% gains. Wow. As it now approaches a 400% gain, I still like most of the fundamentals. So, at what point should I decide to hold all the shares and simply enjoy the dividend? You should hold all the shares and simply enjoy the dividend because you are playing with the house's money, my friend, with a very good stock of a very good company. You did it. 
You did exactly what I say you can do. And by the way, didn't you do better than your mutual fund or your S&P fund? Hey, I'm not against index funds. But how about when smart people make real money? What do you think when that happens? Thank you very much. In an environment like this one, you need to create the worst possible scenario for trade. And then you see who managed to tame the beast. And the answer, Nike. Just do it. Oh, man, buddy, tonight. Is it time to give Whirlpool World? The stock just got hit with a dagger. Is it the spin cycle or could the stock soon be headed higher? I'm going off the charts to see what you're sitting with. Plus, a company allowing grocery stores to extend the shelf life of produce two to three times longer. But first, tech innovator Twilio has had a tough couple of months, hasn't it? Down more than 25%. I'm going to sit down with the CEO find out whether the drop is a buying opportunity or not. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. Let's face it, over the last couple of months, there's been a vicious rotation out of the high-flying cloud-based software stocks that I like so much. The bad news is this whole group has been crushed, mostly because the market lost its taste for turbocharged growth stories with nosebleed valuations. That happens. It happens multiple times a year, but there's a silver lining. The best of these cloud names have become a heck of a lot less expensive, to the point where many of them are too enticing to ignore. Take Twilio, a company that helps app developers embed communications infrastructure into their own programs, better connect with their customers. Remember, this is a customer-driven company. If you've ever gotten a text message from Airbnb or Lyft, that was powered by Twilio. Now, Twilio is one of our cloud kings, and the stock has been red hot, surging from 25 at the beginning of 2018 to 151 to peak the summer. Once the rotation hit, though, the stock came plummeting back to earth, trading down to 110 as of today. Did Twilio do anything wrong? No! In fact, when the company reported at the end of July, the numbers were pretty solid. Hence why we still own it for my charitable trust. You can follow along by joining the ActionWorksPlus.com club. I think this is a broken stock, not a broken company. But do not take my word for it. Let's check in with Jeff Lawson. He's the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Twilio. Get a better read on where his company's headed. Mr. Lawson, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, Jeff. Have a seat. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much for coming into the set. It's always great to see you in person. You have a milestone to celebrate. You hit the billion-dollar run rate, something that Mark Benioff, a mutual friend of ours who helped get Twilio started, tells me is very rare. How'd you do it? Well, by focusing on customers and focusing on growth. I mean, that's the only way you can do it. And, uh, you know, I remember talking to the company several years ago when we had crossed the $100 million run rate. And I pointed to the billion-dollar number, and I said, this is a market and this is a company that can be one of the rare companies to graduate from the $100 million status to the billion dollar. And so I'm really proud of what we've accomplished. But at every step of the way, all you can do is focus on customers and continue to be attached to a a secular trend. And that trend is every company out there needing to focus on building 
great digital experiences for their customers in order to compete in the modern economy. And that's what we do. I own a couple of restaurants. I, I wish that people could just uh, text me uh, t- and find out the availability. Well, I, I never understood why this is not available. It is. You did it. Indeed, right? And we just launched a new product actually a few months ago called Conversations, which is exactly this idea that, you know, it's, you know, it's not uncommon today, right? You know, a few years ago, it was novel when a company could text you. Maybe your table is ready for the restaurant or your flight, you know, is boarding or any of those kinds of things. And several years ago, that was amazing. And and we luckily power a lot of those companies. But nowadays, we're starting to see companies where not only they can text you, but you can text them. And that's the nature of a conversation. And that's how you actually build relationships over time. It's two-way. It always bounces right now. Yeah, right. How many of the notifications you get say, you know, do not reply. Do not reply. DNR. DNR. Or have a question, email us. Wait, I'm right here in the text message. But the leading companies are figuring out that actually if you create this dialogue, uh, it creates great customer relationships and ultimately creates uh, loyalty in customers when they feel connected to you. And and there's all these companies, you know, Nordstrom is an example, where uh, I've been able to text with my sales associate. And when I, you know, I needed a suit a few months ago and I was able to text him and say, I need a suit in a hurry. I got an event this weekend and did the whole thing over a text message, stopped in, tried it on. Perfect. Boom. It was an amazing experience. And we're seeing that repeat. You know, think about Tesla. Tesla is a company where you can text the service manager if you actually need help. And like your car is in service and like they might try to call you and your phone rings. Like, I don't know this number. You don't answer it. And then they can text you and say, you know what? Uh, you know, we need to replace this thing. It's going to be a hundred bucks. Is that okay? And you can be like, yes, approved. Generationally, and this is what people want, right? The leading companies, the companies who really understand how to build a great customer experience are figuring out that text messaging not just one way, like the alerts and notifications, right. which is a great place for right. companies to start, is just the beginning. And that building the relationship is actually a two-way thing. You, and, well, you must be very proud. You have 161,000 customers that you're doing this two-way, right? Yes. And this is extraordinary. I remember when, the con- when you told me, Jim, beware of our concentration. You told me to beware of the concentration. I didn't have to tell you, that's done. 13%, top 10, 13%. The thing that you told me to worry about is no longer an issue. It's the lowest it's ever been, and we've done that by continually building the customer base, uh, both quantitatively, like the number of customers, 161,000 customers, but also growing the nature of all those accounts and continuing to grow the revenue around them. You continue to try to teach people how to code. Uh, uh, Quest 3, you, you care tremendously that everyone knows how to code, which is the single gating factor right now in our country between the haves and have-nots of the younger people. Well, this is such a cool innovation by our team. We challenged our team to say, how can we make it easier for developers to learn Twilio, and even if it's their first time writing code, learning how to code? And our team built a literal video game that you can download to your computer. It's called Twilio Quest. And it's, it's absolutely fun. We have this fictional universe where you have, to, uh, you have to defend the cloud against the enemy, which is the legacy systems. And you actually, in the process of doing it, you learn how to set up your development environment. You learn how to write code. You learn how to send a text message. And it's all a tremendous amount of fun. And we've been hearing from people you know, as young as kids who've been using it and as old as uh, a 79-year-old developer who's now retired but he's keeping up his skills and he's playing Twilio Quest to learn how to all the newest stuff and learn Twilio and building apps. And so we have seen such a wide variety and developers have earned over 5 million experience points doing these quests so far inside of Twilio. I wish people knew how important it is to know code. Younger generation people who watch the show learn how to code and also look for companies that are charitable, that subscribe to a one, one, one plan. 
you're, you do. Yeah, we took the 1% pledge several years ago before we went public. And what that means is that we've committed 1% of the equity of the company to create good in the world around us, to fund Twilio's social responsibility efforts. In fact, just recently, we launched uh, a program to help Twilio power hotlines that are uh, bringing out um, uh, crisis response and prevention in the world. So we noticed organically a lot of these organizations like RAIN, who mm-hmm. helps victims of sexual assault, or Crisis Text Line, who helps people right. in their moment of mental crisis, um, or Partnership for Drug-Free Kids. All these organizations were starting to use Twilio to power uh, communications Fantastic. for people who need help Fantastic. in the moment they need help. And so we committed $5 million dollars to help fund and to get these organizations with modern infrastructure to be able to use voice and text messaging to help the most vulnerable people in our communities. I'm so glad that my, you know, my daughter was uh, that until she recently started teaching a suicide counselor. It's not a lucrative job, and we need the best people possible. So you're helping to do that. It's critically important. Let me ask you, uh, the, the, obviously the group's been scary. Uh, business just goes along, even though the stock's plummet, right? It's not like you did that secondary, but that was to be able to raise money. You did some acquisitions. Astounded at, at the fear that people get for Twilio, even when things are going so strong? Well, we just focus on the long term, right? right. For us, so we focus on customers. We focus on helping customers achieve their goals. And we focus on attaching to the biggest trends that are going on in the industry, which is every company needing to use digital to connect with their customers. And you know what? Right. When times are good, when times are bad, every company needs to focus on growing their business, making their customers happy, and making their customers repeat customers and loyal customers. And that's the business that we're in. And so we just focus on the long term. Last question, uh, kind of an odd coincidence, does uh, Jeff Immel join the board at the actually at the time when the stock hit the high what does he do what does he bring because you know i mean i follow larry culp and ge has become controversial some of the things that mr immel did seem controversial in retrospect is he additive oh jeff is amazing he really? is a world-class leader i mean think about the number of people in this world who've led organizations as global as complex as enterprise focused as jeff has and he brings a wealth of not just experience but relationships to the table okay. and so as twilio continues to penetrate the enterprise Jeff brings a tremendous amount of experience and relationships to the table. And he's already, in just the three months or so that he's been on the board, been tremendously additive and tremendously well, valuable. I'm glad he's helping. As a CEO and to the whole company. I'm glad he's helping. Well, anyway, it's great to see you. Thank you for doing all the charitable things. But you know, thank you for teaching people how to code, which is, again, the way that the, this country has to advance is everyone, including me, because he showed me, to learn somewhat how to code and get better and better. That's Jeff Lawson, Twilio, co-founder, chairman, CEO, Man Money Back. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com slash apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com slash apps. Even though the market managed to stabilize and work its way hard today, you know what? Come on, we're still in a precarious position. I think you need to be on the lookout for stocks that have been able to hold up when the average get hit. Because there's a real possibility we're going to experience more pain going forward. By the way, remember, we're still overbought, oh, just barely. And that's why we're going off the charts with the help of Tim Collins. He's a brilliant technician, my colleague at RealMoney.com. Get a better read on a name that's been behaving surprisingly well, a household name. 
a name called Whirlpool. Yes, in the past two weeks, Whirlpool's gotten hit with a pair of negative analyst reports. First a straight downgrade, then a note of caution. Now, normally when Wall Street starts turning on a stock like that, it gets hammered. But after getting hit with a modest pullback, Whirlpool's held up just fine. In fact, Collins thinks this minor selling actually ended up creating a more bullish technical setup, one that could give the stock some additional upside by the end of the year, maybe to the tune of 10%. Hey, maybe more. What makes him so confident about this iconic big-ticket appliance maker? Let's start with Whirlpool's weekly chart because it paints a pretty clear picture of what's going on here. Over the past year, Whirlpool has been a whirlwind of volatility. The stock has bounced around between 100 and 150, which is a pretty wide range. Since the start of 2019, though, Collins points out that Whirlpool's made a series of higher lows. We'll get to that. See, but it's going, going, going. And then look at this. This is what's really important. Uh, it, it even it's had a hard trouble breaking past 150, all right, uh, like it did today. So the stock is a rising floor of support, all right, a flat ceiling of resistance, creating what is known, just so you know, because it, it's, if it's new to you, you want to know this. This is called an ascending triangle, and that is a reliable, pro- not the strongest formation of the book, but a pretty re- reliable pattern. And when the floor of support is rising, it typically leads to an upside breakout. So you would expect this to happen when you see that pattern. After today, that breakout may actually have finally arrived. Meanwhile, the full stochastic oscillator down at the bottom uh, of this very important momentum indicator, it just now made a bullish crossover where the black line crosses above the red one. Every time that's happened in the last 12 months for this stock, Whirlpool has rallied. So that's a nice sign right there. Plus, the oscillator's only at 55, and that's a lot of room there before it gets too overbought. You know, I fear overbought stocks. Now, there's another way to look at Whirlpool's weekly chart. Late last year, the stock made a W-shaped bottom. Okay? Uh, And then it stopped, followed by a steep decline, Uh, then a bounce, followed by another decline, uh, and then an even bigger bounce. Looking at the recent action here, Collins thinks we're repeating that same W pattern. In fact, right now, we're already in the second bounce, which means Whirlpool could have a lot more room to run. Second bounce here, second bounce here. So how high could this thing go? Okay, check out the daily chart. Over the past couple of months, Whirlpool's been making what's known as a cup and handle formation. An even more reliably bullish pattern than the other one. That's where a stock pulls back and then bounces, forming the cup we got the cup with the yellow line. And then after that rally, it trades a little bit in a tight channel. Here's the tight channel forming the handle. For the last two weeks, Whirlpool's been making the handle. Sooner or later, Collins expects the stock to break out here to the upside, which is what normally happens after this kind of special select pattern. In fact, there's even a formula for this. Based on the depth of the cup, Whirlpool believes that it, uh, Collins believes that Whirlpool could trade as high as 170. That's up 20 points where it's currently trading. That's almost... Worth buying some options for. The weekly chart's a little less bullish, but when you average them out, you still get to 167.50. That is certainly, again, something that I would actually probably consider buying calls on. One more thing. If you look on the left-hand side of the chart, you're going to see these volume by price bars. Typically, don't cover this. Uh, They show us where the bulk of trading volume has occurred over the past four months. And what we see is that a ton of stock has changed hands between 134 and 148. Collins likes that for two reasons. First, it creates a nice floor of support starting about a point below where Whirlpool's currently trading. All right, that's good news. Uh, Second, with the stock at 150, most of these buyers are now in the black. 
That means we don't need to worry about them selling aggressively into the next rally. They're not trying to escape from a busted position. Now, Collins told us what he, that he wants to see Whirlpool close above 150 or perhaps even 152 before he's willing to really pound the table on this one. Today, we got that close above 150. That means the stock could be making its move. Once the breakout starts, and it may have started already, Collins thinks it'll be smooth sailing to substantially higher levels. Hey, guys, Collins is saying... By Whirlpool. You got that. On the other hand, he does point out if it pulls back below 144, you may want to wait for a deeper decline. And if it somehow falls below 135, he says you should ban and ship. But for now, it looks like the upside breakout has started. It's above 150. Could be on its way to 165 or even 170. Bottom line, Whirlpool recently got hit with a downgrade and the stock barely blinked. I like that. Now the charts, as interpreted by Tim Collins, suggest it could have a lot more room to run. And I think you could do a heck of a lot worse than owning this number one appliance maker that has a greater than 3% yield. Charles and Marilyn. Charles. Yes, good afternoon, Mr. Kramer. Keep up the good work. That oh, you're doing thank you, Charles. Thank you. Thank you. Very much so. But listen, quick question regarding Home Depot and Lowe's. Home Depot's valuation is rather significant these days, and Lowe's is in the same arena that they are. My question is, since we've had a Home Depot uh, defection, if you will, two lows. Uh, would it be an equal play to go from Home Depot to Lowe's in terms of picking up share prices? And then a real quick question regarding Pfizer. I have a position in Pfizer. I want to know, is it worth holding on since it's lost a lot of its value? Well, look, here's the problem. Answer. Here's the problem. Uh, these are two great companies. Uh, and you know that Home Depot is run incredibly well. I think that Marvin Ellison's doing great things at Lowe's. But Lowe's is still in the early phase of its turnaround. I will bless Lowe's as a turnaround and Home Depot as one of the consistent companies that are made up of watch. Watch is Walmart, Amazon, Target, Costco, Home Depot. And they're the unassailable ones that are going to continue to march higher, I believe, right into the end of the year. John in California. John. Hello, Jim. Good to talk to you. Hey, John. How you doing in Sacramento? What's happening? Uh, oh, you're a mind reader. Anyway, we got an issue out here in Sacramento with the foothills and the PG&E and the power being shut off on everybody up in the foothills. Thousands of people are without power for days at a time, restaurants, everything, hospitals, everything. So my question to you, I investigated, did my homework, me and the cavemen decided uh, Generac is a very good deal. They have a generator on your house and blah, blah, blah. The, it's hooked up to power. Uh, 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 All right. natural gas or, or propane. So we didn't get Generac. It already kind of popped. So we got Terex. What is your opinion of Terex as being a competitor for the upcoming generation of electricity, which we need in California independently from pg and well, I would say, okay, but too much of the business is not from here. And the business also has other aspects that people say you must sell in a slowdown, John. So I'm going to have to say, don't buy, don't buy. I don't like buy. the thesis, but the reality may not pan out the way it's supposed to. The, ch- the charts suggest you uh, you got to give Whirlpool a shot here. It's doing surprisingly well. Those who are option inclined, maybe you take a shot at it. Much more we have money head. Food waste costs the world $2.5 trillion a year. I'm talking to one company that is really trying to solve the problem. Then it may be the one that got away, but I'm explaining why Benioff and Iger let Twitter go. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer.
Wow, I got to tell you something. This is one of the most exciting stories. When I heard about it, frankly, I didn't believe it. You know, we spent a lot of time here in incredible opportunities in the plant-based meat business, and they're terrific, sure. But there's not the only interesting technology that's going up that could upend the food industry. Look at this one. Appeal Sciences, privately held company, number 48 in CNBC Disruptor 50 list for 2019. Appeal takes left-behind plant materials, leaves and peels, blends them into a kind of shield that can spray on fruits and vegetables to prevent them from going bad. In fact, they can double the time it takes for this stuff to rot without refrigeration. You know how big this is? No wonder some major players in the supermarket space like Costco, one of our face, like Kroger, one of our face, have already started selling their avocados. And now Appeal's working on lemons, limes, asparagus. Not only could this company save the food industry a fortune, it also saves you a lot of hassle when it comes to restocking your kitchen. I think this is an intriguing concept. So let's take a closer look with James Rogers. He's the founder and CEO of Appeal Sciences. Learn more about how his technology works and what it means for the future of the industry. Mr. Rogers, welcome to Mad Money. Jim, good to good see to you, here. sir. Thank thanks, you so much for coming for on. You know, a lot of times you have these disruptors. They have an interesting idea, and you really hope they get it into some sort of big outfit. You just landed Kroger. This is for real. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. 2,500 stores. Kroger is the largest grocer in the U.S. And so tell me what they get and what you get. Uh, well, the, the key with Appeal is that we use food to preserve food. And so what Kroger gets out of this is when someone walks into their stores, they're able to pick up a, a Peel avocado in this case and get something that's going to be better for them, better for their family, and better for the planet. All right, so tell me how it works. My friend uh, Ben Stoto, who's a research director, was saying you actually use like the scrap stuff that would be thrown away and wrap it. And I, I said, oh, come on, how is that possible? Yeah, so... Every plant on the planet has a protective barrier on the outside of it. So we take that material and we recycle it back into a barrier that we apply back to the surface of the produce. And that allows the fruit to slow down the rate that it ages by a factor of two, three, or four times. So an avocado, we use avocados for, uh, from my small plate restaurant, Bar San Miguel, and you have to throw them out all the time That's because right. they don't last long. Well, they've reached internet meme status, right? Yes. The joke of the avocado, not now, not now, not now, now, too late. And so the opportunity with Appeal is to make that internet meme no longer uh, as funny as it is now. So, I mean, are you you actually selling uh, these uh, wares or are people just calling in? And Like, did Costco call you or did you call Costco? Uh, So the way that it works is we go directly to the retailer and we set up contracts with them. And then we go out and we power their supply network with the Appeal application systems. And that allows them to deliver 52 weeks of fresh produce uh, to their shelves. Now, this is a great idea. And apparently, what you were formed with a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. How did they find you? Uh, we wrote an application to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We found them. Um, and the idea was uh, that we could find a way to reduce the amount of waste that was happening on the farm all the way to you know, people's tables. And the challenge is that today in the developing world, most people don't have access to refrigeration. And refrigeration is the tool that we've used in order to get waste down to the 40% numbers that are still alarmingly high. And so the opportunity to use this plant-based solution to reduce that perishability from farm to table um, is is how we win. How big are the applications? We've got avocado, we're using uh, asparagus. Yeah, uh, asparagus is a, is a huge deal. Uh, most people don't think about it, but asparagus is the most polluting vegetable. And that is what? because it's air freighted. We grow asparagus and we put it on a plane. And so the opportunity with Appeal is we now apply the product, put it on a boat, ship it into the country, a tenth of the cost, about an eighth of the CO2 emissions. Now people are watching, they're thinking, I want to be like this man. Uh, How do you make money? Waste. 
waste affects everyone. And no, but I mean, like, why would I pay you? Why would I just say, listen, I want you to do this out of the goodness of your heart? I mean, that, that's the core of it, right? Is that this, this, right now, one in nine people are going hungry. Okay. And so that is a, a problem that needs to get, needs to get solved, but it's not, it's not charity. Right? Right. The waste right now, we're growing food, we're shipping it, and there's a big fraction of it that's going to waste. But, I mean, how, what's the raw cost of how much these shields cost versus what you can sell them for? No, there's no additional cost to the consumer. Really? Because there's so much waste in the system today. We're able to reduce the amount of waste at the store to an extent. The grocers can pay us to apply the product, and they're actually able to maintain their cost or reduce it to the consumer. Okay, so I know that if you're in Costco and you're in Kroger, you're going to be in everywhere. So should I expect one day that it's going to be Walmart? It's going to be, I mean, I'm listening to you. Walmart's listening, which they do. Don't they have to say, look, why are we, why are we spending so much money having stuff go bad when we can use a peel? This is an issue that even goes beyond Walmart. It's a $2.5 trillion problem internationally. This food loss and food waste issue, and if we can make even the slightest dent in this, it's a huge business. Right, well, the last question I have, the most natural, is Amazon Whole Foods. Where are you with that? Uh, so we've been working across the grocery sector. You can imagine this doesn't just impact the Walmarts right. and the Costcos and the Krogers of the world. Um, but the, because the materials that we use are found in every bite of fruit and vegetable you eat every day, organic produce stays organic. So it's a perfect solution for the Whole Foods and the, the Amazons of the world. So it's just maybe just you're saying a matter of time before they recognize this. Just like the categories we work in, it's not a matter of if we work on a category, it's a matter of when. All right, terrific. Now, this is a private company. Can't own shares. But don't you like what he's doing? That's James Rogers, founder and CEO of Appeal Sciences, saving the, saving the globe a huge amount of money and making it so that more people can eat. We need that, certainly. That money's back there. It is time! It's time for the lightning round! And then the lightning round's over. Are you ready, Ski? Got it! the lightning round! Romani in California. Romani! Hey, Jim, how are you? I am good. How about you, sir? I'm doing well. Love your show. And Thank uh, you. I got a question about this healthcare REIT stock, Well Tower. Uh, I don't want to invest in senior uh, real estate unless it's with Ben Toss and uh, Deb Kafaro. I, I, I think you have to go with the uh, person who you know the best. Let's go to John, New Hampshire. John! Hey, Jim. First time caller. Okay. Hey, uh, I just retired about five years ago from okay. uh, Save Long Island, New York. And uh, I'm doing pretty good with my uh, mutual funds and stocks. Good! And uh, uh, I never cash in my dividends. I just roll them over. That's what you should do. But my problem is, uh, my wife owns stock in Dollar Tree, and it's doing really good. But she's had the stock for 20 years and never got a dividend. Well, but it's a great growth stock, and it's doing really well. We just spent some time with Dollar Tree. They merged with Family Dollar. I think it's a buy. I want to go to it. I think you're doing well, and she's doing well. How about Daughtry in Georgia? Daughtry! Hey, how you doing, Kramer? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm calling today in regards to Halliburton, ticker H-A-L. We are not buying any oil or don't oil buy, service stocks. I'm not the putting you in the... I need Trudy in Oregon. Trudy, Trudy, Trudy. Hi, Jim. I hope you know how much we all love you. Oh, thank you, Trudy. 
Thank you. And I okay. love Oregon, too. What's up? Well, good. Come and see us. Okay, here's my question. Um, I was, I'm really mad at myself that I sold Shake Shack at 75. It's up okay. over 100. Do you think I should buy back in? Wait, let it come down. It's been too hot since I reported that last good quarter. This stock has some room to come down, and then you can make your move. I'm going to caution against buying it up here say take a pass. Julia in New York. Julia. Hey, Jim. My question is on CrowdStrike, buy, sell, or hold. I like CrowdStrike. Um, I was a little, uh, uh, let's say, uh, thrown by. It came up in the press conference with the president. I wasn't sure whether they were thinking CrowdStrike or Strike. I need Joaquin, Joaquin in California, Joaquin. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. Uh, so, yeah, the talk that I have is uh, Six Flags. I wanted to know what you think about adding it to a dividend portfolio. And I think Six think Flags is the- fine. I think it's fine. Uh, it, it's going to do okay. This group has been problematic of late. There's some weather issues. I do like Cedar Fair more, just so you know. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. Back in 2016, when Twitter stock had been beaten down to the teens and the company was there for the taking, two of the smartest executives in America chose not to buy it. Both Bob Iger at Disney and Mark Benioff at Salesforce.com passed on Twitter, even though the social media company had made a remarkable comeback since then. They stand by that decision. Are they just fooling themselves or do they have a point? Look, this fall, we're blessed with two incredible autobiographies, Iger's The Ride of a Lifetime and Benioff's Trailblazer. Of course, currently reigning CEOs don't usually write tell-alls. They save the juicy stuff until after they retire. Normally, with this kind of title, the only joy to the process is, well, the book party. I'm over for one on that, by the way. And an occasionally salacious anecdote that's told and retold during the arduous book tour. But these books aren't like that. Both Iger and Benioff have written living, breathing judgments of their own careers, warts and all, into their autobiographies. I think they're remarkably candid. There's just one thing I can't get my head around. The decision not to buy Twitter in the fall of 2016 when the stock had collapsed to the mid-teens thanks to a severe drop in the business and a dysfunctional, unwieldy amalgam of extraneous properties. They both ultimately passed on Twitter, and I'm not sure either of them are truly getting the negative implications of not pulling the trigger themselves. I don't think they, I think they're wrong. Ben Aft describes how he wades into Salesforce because he loves the company, but he actually falls, physically falls on his way to the pitch. The Twitter uh, and, the, of course, the shareholders tend to, they didn't want this thing to happen at all. Pretty spot on metaphor, that falling, for the way the investors reacted to the idea. I looked hard at Twitter, but then, as he told me last week, he couldn't reconcile the clash of styles between the gentle and sweet Disney and the mean-spirited, often harsh world of Twitter. Both of these extraordinarily successful CEOs are proud that they dodged the Twitter bullet. But in retrospect, 
Was there really a bullet to be dodged? To me, it feels more like they dodged a big pile of money. At the very moment when Iger and Benioff were considering an acquisition, Twitter's fortunes seemed to be declining by the day. Yet management was already putting a turnaround strategy into place that ended up making fortunes for any shareholders who were wise enough to stick with them. I mean, over the next two years, the stock went double. Looking back, it seems obvious that the initial instincts of both men were correct. What would Disney do with Twitter? Well, they would have been given rights to a gigantic number of NFL games on the platform, something that would have made ESPN Plus indispensable to fantasy football players, gamblers, and anyone who doesn't care to pay the onerous DirecTV season ticket price. Twitter's sweetheart deal with the NFL made this a no-brainer for Disney. As far as the meanness of Twitter, I, I don't see it as a deal-breaker. But even if it was, you could always use artificial intelligence to clean up the platform. The technology's there to be had. It, makes, it can work. How about Mark Benioff at Salesforce? Well, he had two ways to win. First, buying Twitter would give his sales cloud an unbelievable proprietary database of what's trending and what's working at that very moment so he can help his customers. That's the whole theme of his autobiography. Second, Twitter's direct messaging system would have given consumers uh, instant access to all banks that are so important to his book of business. How many times have your, uh, has your credit card been declined when you're overseas because you can't prove who you are. Secure direct messaging would change that instantly. Think of Twitter as a kind of its fabulous 360-degree customer support class. At the end of the day, I think they both botched this one. In Iger's case, he missed the Twitter opportunity because he saw an image problem. In Benioff's case, he couldn't get the shareholders on board. Still, acquiring Twitter would have been a huge win for either of them, and not just because the stock subsequently caught fire. I have enormous respect for Bob Iger and for Mark Benioff, but they shouldn't be talking about how Twitter as if it was a bullet that they dodged. In reality, it's the one that got away. Two good quarters tonight. We have J-Bill. That's a contract manufacturing company. Very important for the whole chain of tech. Really good number. And KB Homes. Remember, we've been thinking that these housing stocks have been terrific so far. We are really hitting it right. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. I'll see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.